Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Music. Uh, it's interesting. You get a band like this playing together and you know, each instrument, one of the important things we do to prepare to come up and, and play is uh, we, in some way, shape, or form, plug our instruments into a tuner to make sure that um, each note, whether it's strings or whatever, um, each note is exactly in tune. Because if we don't, and we come out here and, and let's say I play my guitar and I strum it, um, if those notes aren't all in tune, uh, you guys have this cringe moment. And le- I mean, unless you're blessed with the gift of uh, being tone deaf, uh, you, you may not have that experience. But what we do when we tune is like, let's say each string on my guitar, um, you know, I, I want to tune it right up to exactly hitting the note that's supposed to be on. If it's a little bit sharp, not so good. If it's a little bit flat and underneath, not so good. It needs to be right on. And each string needs to be right on. And all the instruments need to be in the same tuning together so that we're not having different sounding pitches. You're like, Travis, why are you explaining music pitch to us? It's for a reason. We have this thing called the gospel. And if we add to it, if we're sharp with the gospel, add anything to it, it's out of tune with Jesus's heart. If we subtract anything from it, if we're flat in the gospel, it is out of tune with Jesus's heart. And we have a scripture here today that I think is an amazing way and shows us how we keep in tune on the gospel of Jesus. What he says, only what he says, no more, no less. It's a beautiful picture that we see in in Jesus's early church. Now, Last week, we saw this threat come from outside of the church, these Jews who hadn't seen Jesus as their Messiah. We see them coming and and pursuing Paul and Barnabas and working against their their message of Jesus as King, Jesus as the Messiah. And it's very clear when you have these people outside of the covenant community of Jesus coming and, and, and causing threats to the church. These are outside threats. But this week, it's interesting, Luke now writes about a threat that comes from actually inside of the church, from people who follow Jesus. These are harder. These are harder to see, I think. They're harder to fix. Because you don't fix the threats that come from the outside of the church. You endure them. The threats from within inside the church, though, we're called to come together and work through them. So let's look and see what Luke has to tell us about this threat uh, and this beautiful story that comes from it. In Acts chapter 15, starting at verse one, if you've got a Bible, turn there. I want you to see these words for yourself. Acts 15, verse one, I'll start reading. But some men came down from Judea. Now this is the region that Jerusalem is in. So they came from Jerusalem and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These are men who have left the church in Jerusalem, have come up to the church in Antioch. This is outside of Israel, where it's a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles, probably mostly Gentiles. And they're saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, circumcision was the sign that God had given to the Jews that they were set apart as his covenant people, as the people of God. It was a physical sign on the body of the men that they were set apart and different in God's chosen people. So when these men come from Jerusalem and say to the Gentiles, you must be circumcised first to be saved, what they're saying is you have to become a Jew first to become a Christian. You have to enter into a relationship with Jesus through the lobby of Judaism. Become a Jew first, and that is your access to Jesus. That you have no access to Jesus unless you first become a Jew. 
Now, these men who came from Judea seem to be Christian Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. These are brothers. But they have the false belief that circumcision is necessary for salvation. Now, it's easy to assign motive to them. But we don't know what their motives were. They could have had bad motives. Some people have said it's racist. I mean, there may be a degree of that. I, I don't know. We don't, it doesn't say what their motives were. Perhaps it was just that they had this commitment to the Old Testament scriptures and they felt that the Old Testament scriptures were saying any of the people of God must be circumcised. It's been this way since God created Israel. So why wouldn't we continue to do this sign? We don't know what their motives are. But regardless of their motives, we see an important reality. Threats to Jesus's church do not only come from outside the church, but also from inside. And we're responsible to see these and lovingly work through them. Not divide over them, but to lovingly work through them. Last week in Acts 14, we see the outside threats, these direct resistances to Jesus. But this week, we see that there can be threats that come from within the church, sometimes from people who are disobedient, but perhaps even from very well-meaning people. It's not that people are necessarily going around with evil intent. Perhaps it's just a misunderstanding or perhaps it's they haven't been fully formed in doctrine the way they need to. But let's look at how they handle this. Verse two. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the, the brothers. Now, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. See, their leadership in the church in Jerusalem. Both the apostles, Jesus's, Jesus's chosen apostles who were still there in Jerusalem and elders, leaders in the church. And they declared all that God had done with them but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stop. In the Gospels, who are the Pharisees? They like are typically seen as the bad guys, right? They're the people resisting Jesus. The people coming against Jesus, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law tend to be the people in that role of the foil for Jesus, the, the, the bad guys saying you aren't the Messiah and you're teaching blasphemy. There are Pharisees who have been saved and brought into the church of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. That's awesome. These groups, now not all of them, not all of them had, had, had been against Jesus. Nicodemus was one that had come and had sought Jesus out and that's why we have John 3, 16 because of the conversation that Jesus had with him. Not all of them were against Jesus, but that this sect that was so mainly opposed to Jesus, there are those out of them that saw Jesus for who he was and brought into the gospel community of Jesus. That's a miracle and it's amazing. Some believers who belong to the party, verse five, of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, Here's the deal. Once Paul and Barnabas reached Jerusalem, they conveyed to the apostles and the elders all that God was doing in the Gentiles through their ministry. And yet, there are those in this group who still insist on circumcision for the Gentiles. Now, their argument seems to maybe have downgraded a little bit from to be saved to just to be obedient. It's hard to know. But either way, they're still wanting to put this barrier of circumcision onto Gentile believers. And here's something I realized that they had to argue and debate over this and there was no clear answer to me means that Jesus hadn't instructed his disciples on this issue. He had like quite a few days after his resurrection where he was instructing them on the, the kingdom. But they didn't have a clear answer. If they had, I'm pretty sure the apostles would have said, Jesus taught us about this. The Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. They didn't do that. So I guess this is an assumption, but I'm assuming that this is not one of the things Jesus got around to teaching them about. And so it left them in a place where the church, with the leadership of the Holy Spirit living within them, have to come together and figure out how to figure things out. I think that's beautiful. 
because the Bible isn't going to give specific directions on every decision or every point in our lives. It is what we need. It is our basis of truth. Scripture is our infallible basis of truth, but it doesn't like answer questions like, hey, where should you go to college, right? Or questions like, well, I don't wanna make other stuff up. It doesn't answer every single question. And so Jesus left this question unanswered so that we could have it answered in Scripture by the church coming together and working it through. That's awesome. Here's what I notice about their reaction, those who didn't have this answer. Here's what I notice about the reaction to this very deep disagreement. This was not a small thing. This was a very large disagreement. They didn't separate over it. Instead, they contended for unity in truth by coming together. Paul and Barnabas and this delegation from Antioch come all the way south to Jerusalem. Rather than saying, ah, you guys who are teaching circumcision, get out of here, stop bothering the Gentiles, leave. They didn't do that. They didn't just send them away. They went back to Jerusalem with them to come together and work it out. That long, dangerous journey was worth it for the sake of unity in life and doctrine in the church. So church, this is something I just wanna prayerfully submit to you for the sake of the unity in our church. When there is disagreement, we move toward each other, not away. It's very different than what's typical in our culture, isn't it? In our culture, when there's a difference of opinion, when there's a disagreement, if it gets sharp enough and it's important enough to you, we tend to then just want distance from those people. I think of all the stories of people I heard who were friends before the pandemic, and then because of their disagreements politically or how it should have been handled, are no longer friends after the pandemic. Because instead of moving together to work it through or just say we're gonna agree to disagree and still love each other, it's if you believe that or if you think that, I can't be with you anymore. That may be the way of our world, but it's also one of the reasons our world is so broken and there's so much strife and so much war. Because instead of coming together to work through things, we distance each other and then we demonize each other. I'm so blessed by the number of people who, you know, it's been a hard several years, hasn't it? Anyone else have a hard several years or everyone like, this is the best five years of my life? <laughs> not, not me, man. It's been a hard few years. You wanna know one of the things that's blessed me so much is family members here, people in this church family who have not seen eye to eye with either direction of the church or how the pandemic was dealt with or different issues that could come up. Number of people who though having disagreements have moved towards and said, can we just talk about these things? And in sitting down and talking with them have given me and given others, given each other the opportunity to work through something rather than just quiet quit over it. Those conversations aren't always fun but what a blessing to be, feel divided, come together, talk through things and then say, you know what? We love each other, right? We're gonna stick together, right? I've had that opportunity with several people and it has been, though through a hard disagreement or a not seeing eye to eye, what a beautiful thing has come out of it, life out of separation rather than destruction and rather than distance. Church, when there's a disagreement, we move toward each other, not away. Moving together may be awkward, it may cause debate, it may reveal wounds and hurt, because sometimes the issue isn't the issue, right? Sometimes the issue we bring up isn't the issue. There's actually hurt behind it, and this is just the thing I'm bringing to the table to get my hurt out on the table, and that's okay. It may cause and reveal wounds and hurt, but it is the only way to seek unity and healing. Moving on in verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
Church, it's okay for us to not agree on things and to come together and consider it together. It's okay. No one's a bad person because they disagree with you. And you're not a bad person because they, you disagree with them. It's okay to come together and consider things under the Holy Spirit's guidance together. And after there had been much debate, what? Debate? Disagreement in a church? <gasps> That's never happened. It's okay. It's okay for there to be debate. It's okay for there to be disagreement. It's okay for us to lovingly, with grace and truth, come together and work through these issues. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, Peter, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring back to Acts 10, where he's called to Cornelius's house. He's a Gentile and his family are Gentiles. And God, in, in a very beautiful way, says, don't Distinguish yourself as a Jew from them. Go and be with them and give them the gospel. They believe in Jesus. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not circumcised. They didn't become Jews first. The Holy Spirit fills them, saves them without them becoming Jews first. This is what Peter's talking about. And God, verse eight, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, the Gentiles, by giving them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did us, Jewish believers. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by, what? Faith. Cleansed their heart by faith, by circumcision, by following the law? No, that's not the gospel. He cleansed their heart by faith in Jesus. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You're asking them to get circumcised, but even we Jews who have gotten circumcised haven't borne it well. But we believe that we Jews will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they Gentiles will. Salvation is exactly the same for every person on the planet no matter where you come from, it's by faith in Jesus, by the grace of Jesus. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, that means they stopped arguing, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related that what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, showing that the Gentiles were filled with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> After they finished speaking, James, now this is Jesus's half-brother, the son of Mary and Joseph. This is not one of the original 12, this is Jesus's actual family, Jesus's little brother. James, who was a, a, a leader in the church of Jerusalem, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, he uses Peter's Hebrew name, reminding them that Peter, he's a Jew, he's circumcised. And this wonderful brother of ours, this apostle, who's a circumcised Jew, is contending for our Gentile brothers and sisters. Simeon, our Hebrew brother, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and he quotes the prophet Amos. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David, King David, that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So James summarizes in verse 19, it says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. There are two great threats from within the church. There's probably more than that, but two I wanna talk about today. I've already mentioned them. Jesus plus and Jesus minus. Jesus plus is when we add anything to the requirement of the gospel of salvation, of repentance by grace through faith that is laid out in scripture. When we add anything to it that you need to have trust and faith in Jesus and if you finish that sentence with anything, you have stepped into Jesus plus. If there's anything you believe that would save a person, any work, any, any kind of change, any kind of trying to earn favor with God, above and beyond faith in Jesus, you have stepped into Jesus plus. It may even be well-meaning, but it's a false gospel. Adding anything to the good 
work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection and ascension, that he did it all, that he is the one who saves us, adding anything to that gospel is Jesus plus. And it creates a barrier to salvation when we live in a Jesus plus way or teach a, or live a Jesus plus gospel, we are creating a barrier to salvation to those who would believe. Asking the Gentiles to obey the law of circumcision that God had only ever given to the Jews was an unnecessary barrier. Do you realize that God never ever asked the Gentiles in the Old Testament to be circumcised? Now to become a Jew, to, to uh, convert to Judaism, they did. But God never expected the Hittites to be circumcised. He never expected the Amorites to follow the Old Testament covenant law of God. Now there are laws within that law that are universally um, things God would command of all humans, like do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not uh, lie. Those things are things that have been consistent from the beginning of scripture all the way through. But he never gave the law, like kosher diet laws and, and certain things like that. He never expected that of the Gentiles. He only gave that to the Jews and circumcision to the Jews as part of their covenant special relationship with him. So to add that onto the gospel of Jesus would be a barrier for those to come in. It was a barrier that the Holy Spirit didn't agree with, didn't recognize, because he was already inhabiting and filling Gentiles who had never been circumcised, never had been law followers, Moses' law followers. He's filling them and being that sign of their salvation, and they never had been circumcised. They had never followed the law. So the Holy Spirit says, I'm fine with them the way they are, so why could we, why should we as the church expect anything more of them than the Holy Spirit would? And Peter reminds them that when he was sent by God to Cornelius' house, Acts 10, that the Holy Spirit was given to these Gentiles without any distinction between them and the Jews who believed. Besides that, Peter makes a really interesting and insightful point. He makes the point that Jews all throughout their history had circumcision and yet it didn't guarantee their faithfulness to God. He says, even we having the sign of circumcision, we haven't held up under it very well. We haven't lived under that sign that we are God's chosen people very well. We have kept leaving him and kept disobeying him and we have not, it has not kept us faithful. So why would we give the Gentiles this sign Though good as it was for the Jews, why would we expect them to do this thing that did not produce faithfulness in us? And then James, Jesus' half-brother, also responds by bringing scripture into the conversation. Amos 9, you know, if you read all of Amos 9, it's this prophecy of God's judgment and punishment on Israel for their unfaithfulness to him. But in this prophecy, there's also hope that he, God, will restore Israel and King David's reign. Though, through the truer and better King David, Jesus, he would restore the house of Davis, David through his, his, the one to come, Jesus, who would come as a descendant of David, as a truer and better King David, Jesus. He would restore Israel and King David's reign, but this time he also, when he restored Israel, as a part of their restoration, he would bring in people from the Gentile nations into his household. Part of Israel's restoration when Messiah comes is, and Gentiles will be let in. And the point he seems to be making, James, is that God's plan has been from old to bring Gentiles into his family as Gentiles. They come into the family of God, the family of Israel, but they come in as Gentiles, not as Gentiles who have been converted to Jews through circumcision, that the family of God will be diverse rather than uniform, that there will be many kinds of people, every tribe and tongue and nation as they are coming in to Messiah's household. Church, unity doesn't come from uniformity, but from humility and faithfulness to Jesus and his word. We do not become unified when we all become cookie cutter exactly the same. First of all, that'll never happen. Can I get an amen? 
God is not creating a kingdom of uniformity. Rather, he's creating a kingdom of diversity who all have in common Jesus as king. That's what unity is. You know how beautiful it is when the world looks into the church and says, that person and that person, there's no objective reason they should be so close and love each other and care for each other because they're so different. People who are that different in the world don't love each other and care for each other, sacrifice for each other and visit each other in the hospital when they're sick and pray. Like people don't do this, but when the, the world looks into the church and sees people who have no reason to be unified, being unified, loving each other and overcoming their differences... That's unity, and that is beautiful. That is compelling. Because they say there's something different. There's some magic superglue that's holding them together, and I don't know what it is. We don't become a melting pot in the church. Even at the end of the age, when Jesus returns, we see pictures of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping Jesus in those different languages. He does not erase our differences. He has a stand on the one thing that is the same for all of us. Jesus is king and we are filled with his Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus. And so the family of God is open to all by faith in Jesus. In other words, we cannot allow the false gospel of Jesus plus adding any stipulations to the gospel of salvation that our Lord does not. But there's also this reality of Jesus minus, because it isn't just come as you are and don't change. Is that what the gospel teaches? It says come as you are, but it does not say and don't change. What I mean by Jesus minus is this, that this gospel of grace is truly a gift. It is given by faith in Jesus, but when we receive that gift, we are called into transformation and love. It does not leave us unchanged. If we accept Jesus's free gift of salvation, but ignore his command to live in humble love with each other, we are living a Jesus minus gospel. We are demanding less of ourselves than Jesus asks of his family. If I'm not willing to sacrifice to be unified with you, if I'm not willing to do things that show you love even at cost to me, then I am negating part of what the gospel has the power to do in my life, which is to make me unified with you over our differences and at my own expense, that we would be the kind of people that would sacrifice for each other because we love each other. If we aren't willing to step into that, we may be saved, we may know Jesus, but we're shortchanging the power of the gospel in our lives. Jesus minus. When we subtract from that which Jesus' gospel demands from us, we create a barrier for the church to be unified. When we add to what the gospel says to be saved, we create a barrier for salvation. When we subtract from what the gospel demands of us as we change and transform, we create a barrier to unity. This gracious gospel does not translate into everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. That has never been the way of God's people. Being unchanged, accepting a free gospel of grace and then doing nothing about it, that is not the effect the gospel has when it takes hold of our lives. James insists through scripture that no additional requirements should be added to the gospel. Amen. But then he goes and messes it up. At least that's what I've always struggled with as I've read this chapter in the past. I don't agree with myself on that anymore. But look what he says in verse 20. So it's this thing of like, don't add anything to them. The gospel's good enough. 20, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And I'm like, wait a minute, James. You literally just said that the church should not trouble the Gentiles with issues of Jewish law, but then you list four things that sound very similar to Jewish law. What's going on here? And I want to assure you, James is not confused. He's not engaging in double speak. He's not trying to slip some law in just so that he can. No, 
what he's doing is he's seeking to eliminate any barrier to unity between the Jews and the Gentiles in that church in Antioch and elsewhere. And it's gonna take sacrifice from both. Mutual sacrifice is what he's asking for here. Notice in that list of four directions he gives, three of the four directions James gives deals with food. Food sacrifice to idols, food from strangled animals, and meat with blood still in it. Why would he list three or four things being about food? It's because when the early church met, they didn't come into a room like this with all the seats facing forward surrounded by a plat- surrounding a platform. They didn't have church buildings. They came to people's houses for the most part, and they came around a table. Church was eating a meal together, having communion together, worshiping and teaching in the environment of a dining table. They surrounded a table. We surround this platform. They surrounded a table. Maybe someone needs to build a big wood table that we put right here as a centerpiece and maybe we gather around that rather than this being the symbol. Someone get on that, okay? Mike? Mike's got it. This is all about the church coming together at a common table to eat. And in their day, the church met in these homes and they would come together around a meal and communion would be the centerpiece of what they did. So for Jews to sit at at the same table as an uncircumcised Gentile or just to eat with Gentiles at all would would have hit them as a defiling experience because of how they understood Old Testament laws. James isn't saying, hey, you know how we'll fix this? Just eat on separate tables. No, no, Jews, you're gonna sit with your brothers and sisters who are Gentiles and you're not going to let your taboos of eating with Gentiles who are uncircumcised, you're not gonna let that bother you. You're gonna come together, you're gonna sacrifice and even though that would have been maybe a defiling experience to you in the past, no more. You come together, Jews, you're to sacrifice by eating with your Gentile brothers and sisters. This was asking the Jews to sacrifice. But for the sake of the Jewish brothers and sisters, the Jerusalem council asks the Gentiles to refrain from bringing food that would be revolting to a Jew. Meat that was sacrificed to an idol or strangled in its death or had blood in it would have been the most common kinds of meat that Gentiles would have found in their non-kosher markets. So much of the meat that they bought to eat in their homes had been sacrificed to an idol in a temple, a pagan temple. But to set that meat on a table where your Jewish Christian sibling is eating would be like me coming to your house for dinner and putting some roadkill on the table. Guys, I just hit a possum. Here's dinner. That would be revolting to you. You find it very hard to eat that. And even if you didn't eat it, it sitting there on the table would be really difficult for you. It's not very appetizing, it's likely very offensive. And so, for the sake of table unity, family unity, coming at the same table, the Gentiles might have to visit a kosher market and love their Jewish brothers and sisters by the food that they would bring to share with them. Rather than just saying, I have a right to buy whatever I want, put that on the table, y'all need to just be okay with it. No, the Gentiles were also called to sacrifice for the sake of their Jewish brothers and sisters so they could have oneness at the table. You see, these directions that James gave are about protecting the unity and togetherness of the church and the price of unity is loving sacrifice on all sides. No one digs their heels in and says, you come all the way to me. And the other person can't say, I dig my heels and you come all the way to me. No, no, no. On areas where scripture gives freedom, we come together and say, We're both gonna sacrifice, mutual sacrifice, mutual submission. And then there's this issue of abstaining from sexual immorality. Well, that feels like it's doing its own thing. It's different than the kosher laws. But besides this issue of of abstaining from sexual immorality, 
being the command of God throughout the whole of scripture, I believe it's also a table unity issue, coming together and having unity. Imagine sitting at a table where the members sitting at that table had been unfaithful with or sexually used each other. No family can stay together under those circumstances when you're sitting across the table from someone who's, uh, who's cheated with your spouse. When you're sitting at a table with someone who's used you and abused you sexually. A family cannot handle that. And so yes, it's the command of God for us to be sexually obedient to him. But when we're not, it also causes disunity and broken relationships. So even that is about coming to the table and having the freedom to worship with each other. And so we say no to that which is sin and even to that which may, we may view as our rights in order to preserve unity on the foundation of Jesus and his word. Church, absorb this. When there is disagreement, humility and mutual responsibility are what safeguard both truth and unity. When there's a disagreement, humility and mutual responsibility are what safeguard both truth and unity. Humility and mutual responsibility safeguard truth because God's truth cannot be sufficiently accessed through a prideful heart. If we're walking in in pride and arrogance, it's really hard for us to receive God's truth because we're wise in our own eyes. If you are unwilling to change your mind because of pride, you do not have the ability to onboard truth that you don't currently have. If you aren't willing to change your mind, how can you learn something? How can you receive truth from God that you haven't yet received? So humility is so necessary for us to guard truth. And humility and mutual responsibility safeguard unity because if you are unwilling to empathetically listen to a differing viewpoint, you will never find common ground on the foundation of the gospel. Realize this. If it's not what we are unified on, how could it divide us? Is the church of Jesus, by God's word, unified on political stance? You better answer that. No. Is the gospel of God vote this way or that way? No. So if we're not unified on that ground, how in the world could we disunify over it? Is the gospel of Jesus, is our unity in the gospel of Jesus based on what race or ethnicity or background we come from? Is that the common ground we stand on in the gospel? No, it's not. So if it's not what we unify on, how could it be a cause for disunity in Jesus's church? The foundation we stand on together are not the things that make us different. It's the things that Jesus has given us all. The gospel, his word, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ himself is the foundation we stand on. So that should be the only thing that could cause disunity among us. Is if someone is denying the good, graceful gospel of Jesus and all that it means. We all have mutual responsibility to seek unity and love with each other. Both unity and truth are required from us, not one or the other. If we are unified, if we're together, but we're not standing together on the foundation of Jesus and his scriptures, we may be together, but we're not on Christ the solid rock. Truth, the truth of God's gospel is essential for our unity. Because we can be together, but if we're together not on Jesus, we're not unified on the the foundation of God. But if we have unity in attaining truth, we all agree about truth and we are in agreement with what each other believe, 
but we're not unified, we're not together relationally, we're not for each other, we invalidate the very truth that we say we believe. You see, Jesus' expectation for the church is that we be one as he and the Father are one. Read John 17. John 17 requires unity, and so we nullify the very truth in our lives that we seek to preserve if we are in disunity. So we may be all on a good place doctrinally, and all in a good place with what we believe on the important doctrinal issues. But if we are not unified together, the very scripture that we try to honor, we are disobeying. So we have to be both unified, but unified on the truth of Jesus. Now let's look at, really quickly, the, the letter that the, the council in Jerusalem sends to the church in Antioch. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. See, they're sending people so that when Paul and Barnabas go back and they say, yeah, this is what the Jerusalem council decided, there's other men to vouch for them that it's true. Witnesses to what had been decided. With the following letter, brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, they kind of went rogue. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Read that as you will be unified. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation there, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they, the congregation at Antioch, Jews and Gentiles alike, rejoiced because of its encouragement. The church, both Jews and Gentiles, rejoiced in this mutually loving and sacrificial request made of all of them. Verse 32, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to whom they had been, who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. My friends, a unified church is one where all sacrifice to stay faithful to Jesus and to each other. We all have mutual responsibility. We're not gonna see everything the same. We're not always gonna agree. We're not always gonna have an identical view of how things should be done or the way they should be done. But we are all called to sacrifice, to stay faithful to Jesus and to each other. I'm gonna be faithful to Jesus, so I'm gonna leave my church because of a disagreement. Oops. Maybe we should work it out first. Maybe we should come together first so that the very thing Jesus asks in us of being faithful to him is that we would be faithful to each other and we do it. That's what Jesus asks of us. So what do we do? What do we do? The answer to this question for you might be something that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to you through prayer and listening. But let me give you some suggestions in the same categories as I did last week, thoughts, emotions, and actions doing some questioning and reviewing of some of your thoughts, your emotions, and figuring out what actions the Lord might be giving you in your thoughts. Ask yourself this question. When I think about unbelievers being saved, have I added requirements to their salvation that Jesus has not? And don't, don't just say, of course I don't. Think about it a little bit. Have you ever in your mind thought things like, well, to be saved, you have to stop that sin first or this sin first? I get it. Sin is a barrier in our relationship with God, but that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says we are saved by faith in Jesus and then 
we are transformed through the Holy Spirit living in us. An unregenerated heart, an unregenerated spirit cannot obey God. So it doesn't matter what sin a person or sins any one of us is caught up in. We cannot repent. We cannot be transformed without the Holy Spirit first living in us. So salvation by grace through faith has to happen first. Have you ever said, well, they don't agree with me on some theological points that are important to me, so I question if they actually know Jesus. I've actually heard people say, well, they're a Republican, so I'm not sure they're saved. Or they're a Democrat, so I'm not sure. Can you be a Democrat and be a Christian? Okay, Jesus plus. We're adding stuff. There's not like a a voter registration in the Bible we fill out, you know, to be saved. I'm not saying these things are unimportant, but they are not salvation issues. Have you ever in your mind questioned, how can you be a Christian and also be a fill in the blank? Perhaps some of these questions need to be worked through in your mind or even have some valid difficulties to process through. I'm not saying there aren't nuances and issues with these questions, but if we ever add anything other than the repentance of trusting Jesus' sacrifice for our salvation, we are inhabiting a Jesus plus mentality. He saves and then does the work of transformation and mind change and heart change, life change. How about your thoughts? Have I given myself a pass on the sacrificial humility that the gospel requires me toward others? In other words, am I living in a Jesus minus mindset? Are there things that I must do to be unified with certain brothers and sisters, but that I'm unwilling to do, not because of sin, but because of pride or selfishness? Have I given myself a pass on the humility that it takes to be unified that I'm commanded to do with my brothers and sisters? How about your emotions? An emotional issue is, is there anyone in the family of God that I am at odds with or avoiding that I need to move towards? Now, I would give this caveat. There are some things that can happen where you're violated, abused, that moving towards that person would not be smart, safe, or demanded of you. Even if they are a brother or sister in Christ, I'm not saying that. There are certain things that can happen where distance is just necessary. But for most of us, I think maybe there are people that we divide with or we're avoiding not because of an issue like that, but because of just disagreement. Remember that the Jesus way is when there's a disagreement, we do not move away, but towards each other. And I would put this out there. Is there any help, support, or encouragement you need to feel strong enough to face this hard coming together with someone? Because that's okay. If you're like, I can't do that on my own, that's okay. You may have a brother or sister that could help you. Maybe someone who's not as emotionally involved. Someone on the shepherding team or on the church staff, we are here to help you become like Jesus. Maybe your issue is with someone on staff. And we wanna come together with you, reason together, and find the humility of love with each other. And then here's the actions. If there is any disunity, if there's a gap in understanding, an issue in the church you don't understand, something you're concerned about, or you have distrust for someone in your heart towards another, or you know they feel those ways towards you in a spirit of love, humility, and mutual responsibility, move towards each other and work it through. Work it through. Enlist the help of others who are not emotionally involved if needed. The unity of the church is one of the things that is a proof that Jesus is who he said he is. John 17, may they, my believers, be one as I and the Father are one, so that the world may believe I came from God. There is so much riding on our unity. 
So just to brush it off or say, well, I'll never be unified with that person. We don't get that option. That's Jesus minus. I wanna invite the band to come up and we're gonna just sing one more song together about the unity of the church on the foundation of Jesus. And I just want you to consider these questions and are there any actions you need to take? A brother came up to me after the first service and said, thank you, I have to go have a really hard conversation right now, please pray for me. What a hero. What an amazing, faithful response. May we all be that way. Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we want to honor you. We wanna walk in unity. We wanna walk in love for each other. We wanna be willing to do the hard things. Father, protect us from the threats within the church of us disunifying, of us stepping off the foundation of truth, of us not being willing to do the hard things to fight for and contend for unity. Father, unite us on the solid, solid rock of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. I forgot communion. Take this, I'm sorry, you guys. This bread and this, this cup are a reminder that Jesus not only died to unify us to God, but what he did on the cross and his resurrection also creates a family. And when we eat this together, we're remembering what Jesus did, but we're also remembering that we come around the same table, eat of the same bread, drink of the same cup of Jesus as our redeemer. Church, let's eat this bread in remembrance of Jesus. This blood is the new, new covenant. This, this symbol of the blood is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And this makes us family. I want you to look around. Honestly, look around. Look at the faces in this room. Those who have put their faith in Jesus are your family. So before we drink this, we're gonna do something a little different. Just on the count of three, I'm gonna I'll count to three now. I just want us to confess to each other and just say, you are my family. We're at the same dinner table. I want you to look around and before we drink this, it, I don't care if it's cheesy. I don't care if we never do it before. Some really awesome things are cheesy, okay? Look around at each other. Now on the count of three, we want to say, you are my family. One, two, three. You are my family. Let's drink this cup as a family in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.